Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio manager David Way's Fidelity Longshort Alternative Fund is celebrating its three-year anniversary since its launch in October 2020. The fund seeks to capture alternative sources of alpha and expand the portfolio beyond traditional mutual fund solutions. David discusses current market trends and explains how liquid alternatives may fit into a client's portfolio. He explains how the fund's positioning has changed since the beginning of the interest rate hiking schedule and where geographically he is investing. David says the long-short alternative fund can be thought of as a market-neutral fund where there are alternative sources of alpha. He adds the fund is an equity product that will help reduce the overall volatility of an equity allocation. David says he is optimistic about the future because he invests into change. David also shares his thoughts on valuations of companies, AI, and his thoughts on the continuing high inflationary environment. This podcast was recorded on November 2nd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So three years, it's the fund and and the other funds as well have traversed just about everything. It's been a quite a trial to go through and sort of see what comes out the other side. Have they has your fund done what you thought it would do? Yeah, that's a great question. And having been in the markets for you know over fifteen years, I think we've seen just a lot of different change through the last three years and the life of this fund. And when I launched the fund, the key thing that I was trying to achieve was to deliver attractive returns better than people's alternatives in the market with lower volatility. And you know, three years later, what I'm here saying is that my ambition is to continue to provide attractive returns and lower the market volatility. So let's go into sort of the mandate of the fund for mind. A lot, a lot of people have here joining you have, have met you in this format or other formats before and they've heard it, but just as a reminder, so it's a long short fund, it allows you to have greater conviction, I remember you've said, on your long positions. Take us through into how it works. Absolutely. And so, you know, you hear the words like long, short, it sounds like complicated and scary, but I think the the premise of the fund is really simple, which is that we're trying to widen the opportunity set for making investments. So effectively, what I get to do is I get to run a long portfolio and a short portfolio that work together um, in order to provide more opportunities to make money on investments by shorting stocks that we think are going to go down. And in the process of shorting, we actually generate extra cash within the fund that we can turn around and invest in the long portfolio to own even more of the, the best ideas that make it into the fund through analyst work and my own PM decision making. So do you think of it then as two portfolios? You'll sort of put on your hat and, and look what you're doing there for a long discussion and then and then I mean tell us how that works are they is that the way you look at it partly so I think the way that I approach it is that the two pieces need to work together 
to pursue the, the fund's objective of higher returns, lower volatility. And when I'm making, when I'm building a portfolio, the most important input is the bottom-up stock picking. So within the long portfolio, um, I'm looking at the world, finding ideas, and building a portfolio uh, of the stocks that I feel most confident about. And same in the short portfolio. I'm looking at stocks that I think are going to face challenges that are currently underappreciated by the market. And so you, you do, in a sense, kind of build the portfolios um, a little bit uh, differently. Um, but the really important thing is looking at the fund as a whole to making sure to make sure that the way the fund is positioned, it best expresses my view of the overall world. So we're going to get into the positioning in just a second. How, how does this sort of fit with how you've approached it? So you would have a road to where you ended up yep. as a portfolio manager for this particular fund. What, what does that road look like? Why'd you end up here? It was a long road. So I, were, I was an analyst for over a decade at Fidelity. And what I had to demonstrate over that period in order to get a fund was that I was able to identify you know, winning stocks, avoid losing stocks. And we have a huge like quantitative assessment that every analyst, their ratings and decisions go into that spits out like a quantitative number, like how did you do? And so over the period of 10 years, I was fortunate and had you know, long ideas that outperformed the market by a meaningful amount. I think the number was something like 15 percentage points. And the sell rated stocks that would be, become sort of the foundation of a, a short portfolio underperformed the market by I think seven or eight percent. So I demonstrated strength in both identifying longs and identifying shorts. And so as I got towards the end of my analyst career, you know, covering basically the whole market, I was able to find a fund structure and launch a fund that was really built around my core strengths. And I sort of think that's that's like the greatest privilege at Fidelity, which is to have a product where you don't need to make any compromises. You can actually say, this is how I see the world. This is how I want to invest. And this fund allows me to do what I think I do best. So, so take us through some of the positioning. Actually, we'll just go quickly into why these funds were launched three years ago. I, th I think we've gone through this before, but something actually did change sort of from a regulatory yep. perspective that, that allowed this type of opportunity. Tell us about that. There was a regulatory change that allowed us to launch liquid alternatives. So these are sold just like other mutual funds. They um, provide daily liquidity. They're invested in individual equity securities. So really the regulatory environment just enabled us to provide solutions to clients that really draw on the strengths of Fidelity. So there was really not a whole lot new that we needed to do in order to effectively manage these funds as portfolio managers, as risk and compliance managers. Like these could just plug into what we have been doing for you know, 25, 30 years. And you know, not, notwithstanding that, I think the other thing that we ha we also had to do internally was demonstrate for a, like a number of years that my transition from analyst to portfolio manager of a liquid alternative would deliver sort of against the objectives that I was setting out. So this was, you know, we launched in October 2020, but I started working on this fund in 2018. So I had sort of two years of internal track record that I, I needed to build to demonstrate internally that this is a solution that clients would value. And within that two years, COVID hit. Yep. You then launched when we were still in COVID and cycling lockdowns and so on. Yeah, yeah it was really, it's really nice to be here in person instead of launching, <laughs> launching the fun from uh, my basement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So we're now, so it's traversed COVID and everything that's come out uh, after that. 
including this massive interest rate hiking cycle that we've seen very, very quickly change the world to an extent. Tell us a little bit about how much has changed in your portfolio since the beginning of that hiking cycle. Well, it's an interesting question because I covered insurance in the early part of the last decade, and it was the opposite story. The opposite story. And and real estate too. And, And so interest rates fell. It was bad for insurance companies because they had to service their liabilities with decreasing interest rates. So they took a lot of losses. Um, Book values were under significant pressure for many insurers. And on the flip side, real estate did extremely well during that period because we had falling interest rates, supporting asset values. There was lots of growth. And so in some ways that experience 10 years ago helped shape how I approached this changing interest rate period. And um, I think my conclusion was and remains that well, I'm a little bit uncertain about the near-term direction of rates, like kind of in the range we're in now. I think we very clearly entered in sort of a new regime of higher interest rates. And so, you know, the market will price it in in a few different ways. They'll say, okay, some companies are going to have higher interest expense or, or interest income. Um, some companies are going to face a higher discount rate. So when interest rates are higher, uh, it puts in general downward pressure on valuations. And I think the third thing that is also emerging and people have been a bit slower to appreciate is that there were a number of companies that built their business models around low rates, making acquisitions and trying to achieve growth by deploying cheap capital and buying things. And so now they have capital structures that maybe don't make sense uh, for the next few years. Yeah. So as, as a short seller, you know, obviously that's a, an area where I'm, I'm fishing for ideas. And I think it's, a, it's an opportunity where over the next one to two years, it will become more clear that there are some companies that need to make some you know, big and potentially painful changes uh, to their business model and balance sheets to just survive into the next era. So on the long side, does that leave you with, I mean, there's been lots of discussion about when small caps will catch a bid, for instance. On the long side, does it leave you with largely large cap? It's really a mix. I would say, if anything, the um, over time, the fund's positioning is actually you know, try to identify, like, because one of the things we do really well at Fidelity is research. And we identify undercover companies that have really good secular or product type growth that is underappreciated by the market. So, so undercover just means it's not huge. Yeah, obviously. great question. It's, yeah, they're not, they might be $10 billion companies that have one or two analysts on the street producing research. So it really creates an opportunity for us to become, to develop differentiated thesis on uh, those individual companies. And so, I, I still do own some mid-cap stocks. There has been a bit of cyclical pressure on smaller cap company valuations. Um, but for a lot of these companies, they're pretty resilient. Like I'm not talking about like 500 million to billion dollar companies. These are large enterprises that would be like TSX 60 companies in Canada. Right. Um, and they're actually well positioned for things. And they don't need to refinance immediately? Uh, They may not need to refinance. They may actually be in the business of helping companies refinance and restructure. Okay, fascinating. So you mentioned Canada there. Take take us into the universe itself. Where where can you invest? And and actually, where are you investing regionally? In broad strokes, the the fund's uh, benchmark is 50% Canada, 50% US. And the fund will move based on where I see the idea. So... I think as of the last disclosure, the fund was a little bit more tilted towards the U.S. versus Canada. That's really like a bottom-up type outcome. It's an outcome, not an input into the process. And I also have the ability to buy up to 10% um, non-U.S. Canadian stocks. But 
The way I think about that bucket, it's usually much smaller than 10%. <laughs> and it tends to be my highest conviction ideas. Like we've got analysts all over the world. And if they identify a company that is um, really attractively positioned, either as a long or a short, then what I can do is take a position where I have very high odds that um, I understand the situation around the stock and that we're going to make money uh, by deploying capital there. It's a great question. Are you more focused on long shorting sectors or on pairing competitors? I don't do a lot of pair trading. Um, there have been points in time where a pair trade could make sense, where you see a valuation disconnect or you see a long idea that you're really excited about, but it has like a risk that you just can't manage away. It could be something like the path of the COVID recovery. So I was really excited by shopping malls um, in the early part of the pandemic because the values of those companies you know, fell precipitously. And there were companies that I thought had really great balance sheets, awesome management teams, and assets that were going to um, survive and thrive sort of as we came out of the pandemic. But, and so what I did at that time is I was long a mall read and I was short another mall read that I felt had some pretty significantly underappreciated problems. But in general, I try to pick stocks on a, on a um, bottom-up basis, and I might be expressing a view on, it's, it's rarely a sector, but okay. it could be a subsector. It could be you know, the center aisle of the grocery where they were you know, taking price, um, trading at expensive multiples, uh, but facing pretty significant volume pressure. And so I, in that case, I might have two or three stocks where I would express a view on things changing for the worse there in a short portfolio, just to keep things diverse. So not sectors, but if you take, for instance, utilities have a rough go recently. Yep. Do you do you take that sort of, or it just adds to the way you look at things, but I'm just kind of yeah. curious, it seems yeah, obvious. For sure, and I think if you look at the exposure of the fund, like through the last disclosure, I've been, I've been basically short um, utilities because I, they're not in a great position in the near term to adjust for higher rates. And so they're under a lot of pressure. And the way I would think about Utilities, for example, <laughs> I, I would look at other rate-sensitive sectors. So what I would look at is, are there long opportunities in stocks that might operate in a rate-sensitive sector, like they've sold off because rates have gone up, um, but I think they're better positioned. And one of the great things about Fidelity is we, you know, every quarter we get this big 75-page risk review that helps distill all the risk and reward opportunities so that I can see at a portfolio level, like, what is the ultimate bet that I'm playing, that I'm placing on rates going up or down in the portfolio? Or what is sort of the sensitivity of the fund to changes in those individual factors? Do you find, so we've had news out of the Fed, some headlines will say this is the pivot. I don't know whether we need to get into the headline side of it, but what, what do you do with sort of where interest rates are going from here? We obviously don't know, but how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, I try to distill it down to you know, being macro aware. And I think the, you know, I don't necessarily build a portfolio around my macro outlook. Like last year, you know, sitting here a year ago, I thought rates would be higher for longer. Um, the economy would be resilient and then slow down. And, you know, perhaps that could be negative for the equity markets. And I was actually right on the macro and the market behaved differently. So I think it's really important to be flexible as an investor. Like I think if I could label myself one thing, it's just being flexible because you have to, as an investor, look for the opportunities that the market's providing you, not necessarily the, the opportunities you think you, you want. And so 
I think I've navigated that uh, pretty successfully so far. And I think you just distill it down to what really matters. Rates are higher, higher for longer. And so maybe the Fed's pivoted and there are some stocks that have been you know, significantly pressured that enjoy some relief. But I think we're in a new interest rate regime. And I think the other side of it, we've had fiscal spending um, in Western economies, particularly the US. And I think as we look forward, like we're always looking forward. And so as you look forward to the election period, and we've seen some turbulence politically in the US already, there could be more calls for greater fiscal discipline in the US and a reduction in deficit spending, which has been a powerful driver of continued economic growth in the US and to some degree has helped uh, mute the Fed's intentions of trying to slow down the economy. They have this discussion of fiscal dominance and where, where that fits. What about AI? This is the question we always have to bring in. So ultimately, as we understand it, every company that is publicly traded in the United States and Canada and most places, their CEOs are trying to figure out what their AI yep. the use is. So we, we understand everyone is looking into this. What do you do with it now? Are, are companies actually... Can you tell what valuations will do if a company does have a robust AI jump point? Like, is that clear yet? There's, there remains a lot of uncertainty about what the killer app will be right. coming from AI. What we do know is that it's a rapidly evolving, rapidly developing tool in terms of like, it's making exponential progress. So as we move to the next iteration of GPT, it's going to be exponentially more powerful than what we have today. Is it more useful to your long or your short portfolio? I think from a um, an overall weight perspective, it's actually probably benefited the long portfolio a bit more. Um, but certainly there are companies clearly in the crosshairs and it's a little bit uh, complicated because some of them may, might actually have a little short-term benefit before they have a real long-term uh, competitive threat. And so I think you have to navigate that as a portfolio manager. There's like the trade and then there's the trade after the trade. And so I think it requires a lot of judgment. Um, and I think that's, you know, we've got an army of analysts and portfolio managers making decisions. And I think, you know, I think investing uh, through Fidelity is a great way to make sure that you're on top of the trend without being ahead or behind, because I think that's important. Um, but I think it's, it's quite clear that there are a number of companies that are AI losers and it's sort of an existential threat for them. And so maybe the stocks have sold off a little bit, but there are, you know, certainly we're looking at opportunities every day of companies that face, you know, graver and graver threats so that the market is still um, unclear out. of because we just, we just don't know. Like, I don't know what it's going to look like three years from now, um, but what I can do is I can do some analysis around what are people expecting and is it likely to be worse? So do you have a sense ultimately of where this, this fund could fit? Like, can this be core, your, your fund? Can it be? Is there any reason it can't be? I, I absolutely think it's a part of a core strategy because I think it, it really dovetails nicely. Like if, if there's a portfolio of say like dividend paying securities um, within a, a client's equity allocation, this is a I think a really natural and helpful complement because you know the fund generates alpha from alternative sources. So it brings shorting into a client's capability tool set, and that is a volatility dampener. So it's an equity product that will help reduce the overall volatility of um, an overall equity allocation. And you know, I'm proud of the returns I've generated so far, and I'm working hard every day to continue to generate attractive returns. So I think what you're getting 
or what you've received over the last few years has been higher returns with lower volatility. And I think that would be really additive to like any client portfolio. Okay. In sort of, a, yeah, I was going to say in a balanced situation or, or would you compare it to something else? Anyway, you've had some Yeah. Questions. I mean, I think, I think an easy way to think about it as a market neutral mm -hmm. fund okay. um, would really be like a nice allocation to add to you know, to take from a fixed income sleeve. Yep. Um, again, alternative sources of alpha and zero beta. And this definitely, um, it has some exposure to the market because it is net long exposed. Like I'm super optimistic about the future. Like we're going through a period of a lot of pessimism um, and there's a lot of sort of restructuring or what I would view as dislocation okay. in the market today. But like, I really, embrace that change. I look forward to it and I try to invest into it because, you know, we've got a lot of great analysts and I'm thinking about all the different ways the world could change and trying to take advantage of that to generate returns for clients. What I mean, we talk a lot about looking at the Magnificent Seven versus everything else, essentially. What do you think of valuations? Take us through sort of a couple of different areas of the market where, where you think valuations maybe have, I mean, things have come down a bit lately, yeah. so maybe it's more attractive. Give us your thoughts on valuations. Yeah, I mean, I think at a high level, uh, one of the things that I do think about is, you know, where bond yields are today, what is the overall market valuation that makes sense? And you can debate that it's fair or maybe, you know, slightly above fair value, um, but also the composition of the market has changed, um, as we know. And I think there are there's a small number of companies, you know, driving a lot of growth in the, you know, S&P 500 earnings over time. And so I think it's... Um, really important to drill down below that market valuation. And what I, you know, I took a marketing class in business school and uh, one of the professors had enjoy, had uh, invented like a uh, paired choice theory. It's like, do you like A more than B? Do you like B more than C? Mm -hmm. And so in periods like this, what I try to do is I try to look at the market, not as a stock market, but, you know, as individual stocks. And what you can find is, you know, there's a bunch of companies that don't have great growth prospects, Maybe they traded at a high valuation five years ago. Um, I don't think they're going to trade at as high of a valuation over the next five years. And the market might still be anchored okay, to, so to say, a lower interest rate world. And, okay, gotcha. and many stocks, they haven't been. And so it's and it's one of the things that we work with the analysts on of understanding like, hey, you know, if this is your view on the company, you know, it's it's at a higher valuation than these companies over here, maybe in a different sector that have you know, better growth, lower valuation. And it's it's a way to help people get a clearer sense of where we are in the world today. And I think that's, I try to live in the world today and, yeah. you know, come up with a view of how I think the, the near future will evolve, like what the next one year um, looks like and how my view might be different than the market. So how much of your view is linked to companies restructuring in a higher interest rate environment? So I think that it's a very active uh, part of the fund of looking at companies that have too much debt and maybe they don't generate enough cash flow um, to restructure their debt internally. Like there's some companies that they're like, okay, maybe the optimal debt level is lower than we have today, but we can, over the next year, maybe we don't do buybacks for a year and we use the cash to reduce our debt load. And then they're back into a very healthy level. That's like a company that can do a lot of self-help. Right. There's companies that are already starting in a great, great place. Like, you know, Microsoft um, has net cash um, and they don't have any debt. And so that's like, I think that sort of flexibility and financial resiliency is something that's becoming more appreciated in companies. And then on the short side, there's companies that have too much debt, not enough cash flow, and they're really going to have to do something. Maybe 
And in times like this, when the debt becomes due, they either need to raise equity, sell like a trophy asset um, because they can get a high multiple. So it's sort of less damaging to the overall company's valuation. So is there quite a lot of link to M&A in the short side? So M&A is a, is something that when I short a stock, yeah. the number or one even thi- bankruptcy. Yeah, the, the number one thing I'm trying to make sure is that the company is a low low odds target for M&A. Okay. So if I have a bigger short position, it'll be in a company that is very large cap and unlikely to be acquired, either for size reasons or regulatory reasons. Like right. this company can't get bought. And so I look at M&A as a lens in that regard, but also on the restructuring side, like you know, there's a disclosed holding as of June 30th um, in a company called FDI Consulting, and they're involved in uh, the restructuring business. So right. as the economic pain starts to build for companies that you know are not in a good f- fiscal position um, or are FTX, um, which FTI is a, a named consultant on, um, this is a company that actually benefits from economic turbulence. So. It may sound like there's a lot of opportunities to play defense, but there's actually opportunities to play offense as well. Within the short portfolio. That is so fascinating. That's a really interesting example too. Um, So why is this fund particularly, as we just sort of close out a little bit, good for right now? So here we are, quite a lot of volatility. You've sketched what the market's dealing with. Why particularly now for those that, you know, are not involved with this fund right now? I think it's a, a great opportunity to own a fund like this in today's market because we're undergoing a lot of change. There's a lot of um, distortion in the market from moving from a low rate interest rate period to a higher rate interest rate period. On top of that, there's a lot of economic uncertainty. And I think uh, through a period like this, you need a fund that can access different sources of returns. And so this is a fund that has more flexibility than a long only portfolio. And if one of the byproducts of running a long short fund is reduced volatility, it actually favors um, higher returns over time. Because if you can protect capital on the downside, uh, to the the extent we experience downside volatility in the market, you hold on to more capital. And because I'm style agnostic, I'm also looking for that other side. When we get sort of the- When you say style agnostic, mean- so, not particularly growth, not particularly value. Yeah, so I, exactly. So I, I'm not just like leaning on growth stocks or value stocks where you know, you'd expect like maybe you know the fund to do really well through a period and then go through a period where it's like kind of not the market uh, that most benefits that fund strategy. This is a, a product that is designed to invest through periods like this. And so you know I've never been more excited to to do this because you know my biggest problem right now is like. Analysts are just like giving me a lot of ideas. So um, sometimes you struggle to find ideas. And now this is really about, you know, doing the sorting and and working with the team to really filter down a bunch of good ideas into a few great ideas. So these are the good problems we like. Yeah, I I hope so. Bad problems and good problems. These are good problems. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, there's a question coming in. You mentioned FTX. Can this fund hold crypto? I don't um, believe it can hold like crypto um, as a standalone. through the equity markets, if, if you wanted to express a positive view on cryptocurrency, there are certainly ETFs and there's companies that have basically staked their enterprise value on the value of Bitcoin, like okay. MicroStrategy, for example. Fantastic. Okay. Anything else you just want to leave with investors? I think I feel like we've covered most of the most of the points, but what would you just like to leave people with? I'd first like to thank everyone for their time and attention this morning. And I think the overall message that I'd like to leave is that through periods of volatility and uncertainty, 
I think a fund that is structured to be very cognizant about near-term risks and manage that volatility through periods where you know it may be more challenging for clients to stick to the very strong long-term plans they, they might have set up. This is a product that can slot in really nicely, provide equity-like returns with lower volatility. And I think it, it's absolutely these kinds of markets where these types of solutions could add value to a lot of clients. Fascinating. It's great to speak with you in person and to, to have you share views with everyone joining us here today. David Bray, thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.